So this will be kind of fun for me. All right. Okay. Welcome to the Futile Podcast. Tonight, it's Zach, it's Ian, it's Rocco, and we're going to talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood from 2019, written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. This is Quentin's ninth and ninth to last film. Ninth so to last. Take off. Well, isn't or whatever. So yeah. he's going to make. He's going to make another eight <laughs> or tenth. Or he's supposed to only do ten, but we can get into that a little later when we. I'm assuming that he'll just. I, every time anyone high profile like that says they're retiring, they never end up doing it. I, I would be stunned if he didn't make a bunch more. You know. Uh, I, I bet. Soderberg, I bet he does take Soderberg a break. Soderbergh did something like that too, and then almost immediately started making movies again. You don't think he'll take a break? He might take a break, but I mean, this guy's whole life has been movies so why you know why would you that's the question it's like what does he um you know what does he pivot to it's like daniel day lewis is a different kind of human being than quentin tarantino like quentin tarantino he's got really nothing else i don't think i don't know i think he's got other content he could create and he knows that now is like the time so maybe he feels kind of stuck in like when you do a movie you commit to one thing for two or three years or maybe even longer in his case so there's a good chance he maybe just wants to write short fiction and do stuff, and I don't know. I could see. I, mean, I could see a lot of a maybe he wants to write a comic book and executive produce a TV uh, show maybe. and kind of. I be could see him doing a comic stuff, book. You know? Well, he has right. He co-wrote the Django comic, I think. Django meets Zorro oh, right. or whatever. Well, and he, you know, he's he's done TV before. He's directed episodes of things, and he's produced shows. And I just, I, do I don't know how interesting CSI that CSI and ER, right? Or yeah, I do anymore. So. Yeah, I think it was those. Uh, he, he might have done more than that. Yeah, he but he tried to write two books and then they both ended up just being great movies. Why settle for what I assume in his mind is a lesser art form? I don't know if he thinks that he. I think he has proper uh, reverence for all the different types of visual entertainment. I I hear um, it in his voice when he talks about it in interviews and podcasts and things like that. I think he. I think he appreciates. You know different genres of films than he's ever messed with, and I think he appreciates a different media, also. So I, I think he's not. I don't think he thinks of any of that stuff as lesser. And consider the fact that all the things he's made have been, you know, based on or ripped off of, in some people's mind, of exploitation genres. You know, which is like the lowest form of film outside of porn. Sure, he's heightening this smut. Yeah. I'm, maybe he should just make a porn. And I, th- I think that the answer to the Tarantino, what will he do, why will he do it mystery, is kind of a simple one. And I think, not to knock the guy a little, but it's a bit ego-related. Because he said he wanted to do a certain number of westerns so he could call himself a western director. And I have no doubt in my mind that he appreciates proper literature and probably wants to have a number one best-selling book, too, or something, at some point in his life. So I could see him completely being, like, validly say, taking something that could become a great movie and doing that. And being like, no, I'm going to make this my book because this will be my number one, you know. He's, like, trying to get an EGOT or something, you know. Mm. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. He'll do whatever he does. And what he's done right here is do a uh, 1969, I don't know what you even call this. It's kind of a buddy, buddy, uh... I, you know, I... I was assuming some sort of like, I mean, you can usually put, you can put his past films into specific genres and that way you don't have to say if something is a comedy or a drama, but this isn't really, it's not like, I mean, you know, uh, Hateful Eight is a Western, Django is a, I guess a Western yeah, okay. uh, he called it a southern. In Inglorious Bastards, I guess you could call a war film. I mean, none of them really fall into those things exactly, but that's essentially how you can label them so that they fit into some sort of whatever. Well, this is more I mean, difficult to do because it's you know, I I would say it's just a comedy. But right. but it but it's not necessarily a comedy and as I've said, I, I don't know. I think one of Tarantino's strengths is that every single frame he shoots is suspenseful. And he's not making thrillers really or anything like that, but there's always a sense of unease and dread in every scene, everything feels like it's leading towards something catastrophic and explosive in every one of his movies. And so, I was just yeah, yeah, I was so just I, talking about Mindhunter today with somebody, and I I made that comparison with with Tarantino and Fincher, where Fincher does the thing 
but he does it with his thrillers. He does the uneasy feeling where it's just like sort of mounting and Tarantino does it in, in once upon a time. I mean, the best example in that movie I think is when they're at the ranch and fucking nothing happens. Like it's just this perfectly horrifying scene where nothing goes wrong. And you're watching it in every single, it just keeps getting further and further toward something that could have been disastrous. And you know, it doesn't happen. And, and and I know right, it's all spoiler alert. We're going to talk about the yeah, movie, yeah. so if you haven't seen it, we're going to right. cut pretty deep into this and get it. I think in nature of why I think that he's using kind of an interesting cheat to achieve that suspense. Certainly in this movie, and maybe in a couple of the others. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I mean, that's what suspense is, right? Right. Well, I think him and Fincher, uh, the ultimate cheat for for like setting that tone is music. But I feel like they do it effectively enough. I mean, there usually is music, but even if there wasn't, I feel like there would be moments where you're still sort of feeling that that way. Well, sure. I mean, like you could go back to someone like Carpenter, and we don't need to go down this too far. But Carpenter's always been good at shooting things with a so it's cinematography as well with a sense of um, claustrophobia. And when I rewatched uh, the, uh, the original Halloween, I noticed unlike something like The Thing or a lot of his other movies where they're shot on sets and like the claustrophobia is kind of intrinsic to the mise en scene. Uh, in something like Halloween, it's this tighter kind of framing and there's not a lot of headroom. So even though you got these babysitters walking in an open space in a suburb, there is still a sense of kind of tension and unease because it's tight. It's claustrophobic, even though it's wide open. So I, yeah. think, I think certainly like uh, when, when he's at the ranch in this movie... Um, there's that's being done through the setting and through maybe bits of the music, though I can honestly say I don't really remember much of the score and and all the other things. It's also being done, and this is where I think the cheat is in this movie and probably in Inglorious Bastards and, and in Django to a degree, is uh, this idea of kind of uh, the an informed audience having a sense of like what is historically the situation <laughs> so we're so we know we don't know that like okay the brad pitt character is maybe some kind of weird pseudo hal needham you know stuntman type or something but he's a made-up character and now he's at you know he's at the manson family compound looking in to see if his friend is dead and all we all i know is these guys did some awful stuff, and they're crazy crackpots, and I don't know if this character is going to make it out of here because I don't know anything about this. This is fictional. So he's using a little bit of history to help elevate the suspense, and I, I have to wonder, and I have to ask you guys this, both this and in the great finale, do you feel like all that tension that was in that initial watch when you didn't know it was going to do the Inglorious Bastards thing and be, a, be an alternate history, do you think that's going to be... Like, certainly not... It never would be because it's a rewatch. But on a rewatch, do you think it's going to be even half as as intense? Or do you think it's going to be a different experience? I I have to imagine, in my case, it would make it a far lesser film. However, I've heard from many people who saw it, in some cases, even twice in a row. And loved it just as much, if not more. Because I think if people are in the mindset that they already love him. They want to go back and see yeah. how he did things and how sure. he set things up. That's a different question. In, though, in terms of the suspense and stuff like that, I feel like it would make three quarters of the film just seem to drag. It, I don't know that it would ruin the movie on a rewatch. I think that my take is going to be that I will greatly enjoy the ultimate four-hour director's cut with Tim Roth in it version that gets released eventually on like a Sunday afternoon into an evening. I'll just put it on and watch it and mm-hmm. pause it and yeah. eat dinner. And, and I'll have fun because there's so many other things going on in the movie. Like you said, there's it's not just, oh, let's watch these kind of bumbling Abbott and Costello <laughs> stand-in types. Abbott and Costello meets the Manson family, you know? Um, <laughs> instead, it's, uh, you know, Burt Reynolds and Hal Needham meet the Manson family with a sprinkle of Clint Eastwood in there. So I don't know. I mean, I think that that conclusion is still going to have, uh, obviously, like, from an almost cultural standpoint, just like with Inglorious Bastards, has, right, yeah, has a I great mean, revenge fantasy catharsis to it that will always have some effect, but will never be as strong as the first time you saw it. I, I just I think that when you when it comes to uh, and that's okay, film but, criticism know. and film analysis, in in some cases there might be a situation where you're able to review something based on the seventh or eighth time you've seen it but i think the most um 
authentic response is your first reaction. So I don't think it it uh, takes it down a peg or anything like that to say that it's going to be less suspenseful on another no. watch. I don't think it does at all. I think your your reaction, your instinctual reaction to it the first time is your true response to it. So I think. You know, the, yes, it's going to be less suspenseful, absolutely. But but I, don't I mean, know if that uh, matters to bring up Fincher again, like Zodiac. I mean, this movie in a lot of ways is very similar to Zodiac, yeah, except for it's like more light in tone. It's a long, like kind of true story that takes liberties, and it has. And so, I mean, this, the basement scene in Zodiac, which I bring up all the time, uh, it definitely holds up. I mean, it's it's one of those things where you rewatch a movie and you you know exactly what's going to happen, but you're still sort yeah, of rooting for true. other things to happen. That's true. Um, and then, like, did you guys... So, I've talked to a ton of people who did not see the ending coming at all, and they were, like, blown away by it. I, for some reason, I was sort of shocked when my friend was like, did you see that ending coming? And I, I for some reason, had it in my head that I already knew that was the ending, and I definitely didn't because I didn't read anything about this movie, but I, I don't I know if I was just, like, assuming it because of Inglorious, but I definitely knew that they weren't going to kill Sharon Tate. I did not. I didn't know that. I um, I went in completely blind, and in fact, I went in thinking this isn't going to be very good. I just from me the, too. Weirdly, just from the previews, I was like, Gosh, this doesn't look interesting to me. It, you know, I'm sure he'll do something much better with it. I, I think in most cases, I see. At some point, I started watching his films begrudgingly because I was like, ah, I really don't want to sit down. You and mean do rewatching this. or his no, more recent time. movies? Yeah, like begrudging. Hateful Eight. I had to force myself oh, to watch, okay. and I enjoyed it. But I was gonna say, did you have you disliked any of them, or do you, I haven't, are you just no, like? I mean, you know what's funny is that everyone loves Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown is the most boring one of his for me. It's like that's the movie I care least. Also, Reservoir Dogs. I really don't care about that too much. Oh but, wow! But yeah. uh, I, I had to force myself to watch Hateful Eight, and then this too. I was like, yeah, I mean, this sounds like a good. It, it might be a good time, but it doesn't look good to me. It doesn't look like it's going to be funny. I really don't like Brad Pitt. Um, yada yada yada, and it was. You know what's funny is that the, the the ending sure made made it in a way because if nothing had ended up happening or what happened in real life had happened, uh, then you, you would kind of look back on everything you just sat through and be like, why, 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 why? Because you know a lot of people were critics were like, there's too much sitting in cars and driving and listening to the radio, and then yeah the the. Other people are like, well, that's what's great about it, and they, you know, there's a two camps arguing about whether or not all the drive time and the unending conversations are good or bad. And in Tarantino's case, that stuff's almost always good because it's part of the whole, it's part of his whole shtick. That's his shtick, you know. Yeah, um, I, was, I mean, I was enjoying, I was like enjoying the whole thing, and then after like an hour and forty minutes, I sort of, like, in my head, was thinking what's why is this movie so meandering and then i kind of stopped myself and was like well i'm enjoying every single exactly. part so i don't yeah. know why i'm right. so mad why, about why, it. why does that matter i mean in tarantino's case is always is always this is that he's breaking every single rule of right. of filmmaking of screenwriting of storytelling um and i don't know that it works in spite of that it might be working because of that but he makes it work because he's such a master and I don't like when people go like, oh, something wasn't was okay, but I really liked the performances. I really liked the cinematography. <laughs> that always sounds so empty to me. Who gives a shit about that stuff? Who cares about that stuff? If the movie itself that those things are plastered on doesn't hold your interest and isn't entertaining and, and you know, amazing, then who cares if there's a good performance in it or well, there's but also good like cinematography? And in his case it doesn't matter who he puts in the film. It doesn't matter who the, the performances, how the performances are or anything like that. And he is, he, he does have good cinematography and he does get great performances, but right. I don't think anything has to do. Any of that has to do with how great his films are just based on the audacity of the story. His stories are audacious and, and, uh, you know, ostentatious in a way they're, they're, they're shocking. All of them are shocking in their own way. I, I think also, if well, I think oh, we can cir circle back to Quentin Tarantino in, in general thing. I think maybe the best one to look at might be gr uh, Groundhog Day. Yeah. Groundhog Day. Um, <laughs> death Proof. Death Proof. But but just for the moment, because we we're kind of we really dove right in. Um, 
who wants to be the the plot giver of this real quick? Just like sort of set the stage for people, and then we can kind of maybe each give our two cents on the overall, and then then get into the guts of it. Looks like that's you, Rocco. All right. Uh, so essentially, um, I mean, uh, do you guys care about real names? I know Rick Dalton's Leonardo DiCaprio's character, but that's like Rick all. Rick and Cliff Rick Booth, Dalton, I think. Cliff Booth. Sure. Yeah, I, I mean, really, I just like in, in two minutes, it could be like, Polanski. these guys are buddies, one guy's a down yeah. and out. Uh, so it sounds after. like Ian's doing it. Yeah, <laughs> I'll just do it to get out of the way. I hate doing I hate it, so I just try to get it out so that otherwise it's not just like the most inside baseball thing in the world to anyone listening. Sure. So yeah, so, so it starts and I mean, you get uh, DiCaprio is an old like Gunsmoke style Western TV show actor who's on, on the outs. He, he comes in and he plays like the, the, the pilot episode bad guy. And his acting career is kind of starting to fizzle. And his stuntman buddy is uh, Brad Pitt. And they're just pals. And Brad Pitt's kind of on the outs, too, because something may have happened where he may have murdered his wife, but he got away <laughs> with it. And um, it is, It's going to be meandering. But basically, you have what's going on with these two characters is that they're both kind of on the outs. Uh, it's, it's 1969, so the golden age of Hollywood, blah, 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 starting yeah. to collapse into the 70s. We all know going into it. I mean, it, it, a lot of it, I think, plays for an informed audience about like Hollywood history and of course just the history of the Sharon Tate situation. And so the real characters in it are Sharon Tate and Polanski and, Polanski and, and all that. And, and then so you we know okay this is getting set up and leading towards, you know, a pretty significant, you know, event when, you know, the Manson family murdered pregnant Sharon Tate and that really kind of upset a lot of things. It was probably one of the most grisly things that happened in kind of now the 70s start and the 70s right. are terrible. And, and, and you know what's... Hollywood like, gets darker and more cynical. And, and believe, have you, has everyone listened to Tarantino on uh, the History of Horror podcast? Have you listened to that yet, Rocco? Oh, no, I didn't know about it. I'll, well, there's, I will there's, right a good, there's a good bit where I think that this is, that it informs a bit about his like this being a fan fairy tale story from his perspective too, where he does an analysis of not much of one, but he mentions that sort of Polanski was going to go on to become the next sort of level of a Hitchcock. He was with he. Met, I've never seen it, but he talks about Repulsion. That he talks about Rosemary's Baby. But Repulsion's like, really good. But 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 what happens is Polanski, rather than continuing to make movies sort of like that, has his wife, pregnant wife, murdered, and then things change for him. And so he kind of gets derailed, and then it ends up being De Palma is kind of what, what Tarantino right. argues. And that ends up being just a different course of history and all these other things. So you could get into a bit of like the fantasy revenge thing of, what if this didn't happen, and how would how would the imaginary Tarantino anyway, first go? the back to the plot thing yeah. is Rick Dalton is the uh, neighbor of Polanski and Tate, and uh, going about their own career things they, they keep crossing paths with Tate and you kind of see Tate's like I think it mostly it, everything in the first however long of it follows one day right it's hard to say I think it's mostly one day or maybe it's two days or, it's a couple there, yeah because there's like a part a weekend, where he says I'll see you tomorrow so maybe yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's and a, they don't it's a, cross paths with Tate. They they, they might they see, see her them. occasionally, see, but yeah. it's not till the end that they actually meet. Anyway, well, and that's but a, they intercut the, the intercut between her story and this story. That's one of the that you know, uh, yeah. Dalton has a fantasy about how would it be to to be invited to one of their pool parties one time, and how that might elongate his career or whatever. But uh, anyway, and then you also have some of the Manson murderers, and you know, I, I'm wondering how much, how effective it was for people who don't know who any of those people were, because when they, they say names, and if you are familiar with the Manson family murders, you would know, like, Squeaky From and stuff like that, like, you know, you know, so those are all characters in it. Tex or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Those are all characters who you meet, you know, throughout the thing, and eventually they all come to a head in the end, yada yada. But I think what's interesting is so a lot of people point to uh, the Sharon Tate murder or the Manson family murder since it was four people or whatever, uh, plus the baby. So I guess that's five uh, as like the so that was technically figuratively, figuratively and literally the end of the 60s because it was the quote unquote death of innocence that people always talk about and have, you know, you're saying kind of as that as a result, the 70s especially in the terms of filmmaking, changed course. But Tarantino himself is a huge fan 
of the filmmaking that came out of the 70s and the new Hollywood and stuff like that. And those people were instrumental in the, in the, the changing face of film. And so it's interesting to think of the fact that so this movie ends with, uh, you know, alternate uh, revisionist history thing. And in the way where Tarantino never exists. <laughs> exactly. So in that way, uh, the, the, there is no loss of innocence. So what is that saying? Is that saying that the studio system could continue? And I mean, it was already failing by that well, point. That, but I mean, you know, but but what what exactly would come out of that? And just in terms of uh, general feel well, of things, we, people we wouldn't be horrified by those murders. Instead, it ends up being a funny thing where yeah. a couple of uh, drunk and high, yeah, uh, you know, actors. Just yeah, it becomes a total fantasy. Kids, I mean, you my, know, my, but, my letterbox review was one sentence, and it, it was right on, but. No, I think the question is like, so does Rick Dalton star in Chinatown, or right, what right, happens there, right? right. Um, or does or does Roman Polanski do more dark, continue the Hitchcock thing, and maybe maybe it still becomes a, a dark sort of seventies, but it's more just that it isn't Polanski that gets derailed, and so the kind of filmmaking is that much better in a fantasy world. It's that much. It's like take the seventies and how good that was, but don't take this one director who was on a path potentially to do things. And derail him. You know, what would Polanski have done in the 80s? Maybe he would have directed well, a big know. blockbuster, the, the blockbuster, the real true blockbuster before Jaws, and that would have been a whole different scenario for all of cinema. And it could be better, it could be different or worse. So I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's, it's not so much... It's tough I to mean, say. he kept making movies, though. I mean, he I did, understand, yeah. like, I get that you know, something horrible and traumatic happened to him, but he still, you know, he still raped a kid and fled the country and kept making movies. Right. And I, I don't know if, I don't know if he really would have like repulsion's really good, but it's also really fucking weird. It's not like a rewatchable. It's not like Hitchcock to me. I don't, I kind of think that's a weird comparison for Tarantino to make, but I guess, I mean, Rosemary's baby. I mean, he was sort of skyrocketed into fame, right? Right. I don't really know about like how the world saw him, but that was a huge hit, wasn't it? I, th- I think it was, and I think I think if you look at what's going on in the content there, you're seeing. I mean, this I mean, ostensibly Tarantino was talking about this in the context of ho- of the horror genre, so I think oh, okay, that, okay. It, that that might be more sp- a better way to look so at. It was it. more of like not, a next big all, thing. Not kind all of seventy cinema was going to change, but you know, the horror genre could have maybe been a little bit more sophisticated, for lack of a better term. I don't know. It would okay, have been okay. po- Polanski and not De Palma or something. I, I, it's hard to say. Or De Palma would have still come around in the 80s. These things are just like, you know, pie in the sky. We're getting, we're veering dangerously close into the world of like when people talk in sports stuff about like what would happen if, you know, Larry Bird didn't get traded to wherever or something. But I mean, this movie, <laughs> this movie specifically deals with that idea. It yeah. sets up that, that thing. So you, you kind of can't help but talk about it. So we'll what, would happen, what would happen if Kobe was clutch? <laughs> Kobe already was clutched by that, by however stupid that term is, by its, its own existence. But does any of us understand Shut up, which, which Tarantino vert? So this is the one that includes the red apple cigarettes. So does that mean it's the movie verse inside of the team? Or is because there's two kinds, right? From what I've heard, and I haven't researched this at all, but like listening to other podcasts, I've heard that there's. Some some of his movies take place are movies within the universe of his other movies, and, but the ones with red apple cigarettes, I don't know if that's supposed to be his own universe. Where like Kill Bill is a movie within that. So red apples are in Pulp Fiction and they're in this movie because there's the secret ending where DiCaprio does the ad for red apples. So Tarantino very clearly wanted it to land in the red apple verse of the Tarantino verse. <laughs> are red apples only in two? I know they've got to be in another one. Uh, they yeah. might even be in Jackie Brown. I don't know though. Um, but they're definitely so definitely the Holly, the LA that comes about from the lack of the Sharon Tate murders um, is the kind of LA that's uh, in ninety two or four or whatever is what Pulp Fiction is. So sure. there you go. And it's possible that there were red apples in in Glorious Bastards that the whole thing is all coming around. I like to think that maybe Brad Pitt's playing the same character in Glorious Bastards as he is. Because <laughs> they, they mention that he was a war hero, don't they? It's a yeah. different, different yeah. character name. There's a lot of interesting stuff name. with that Cliff Booth character. Because not only do you have that thing, which a lot of people have complained about, which is the wife killing. But, uh, y- you know, you can infer that so much of his uh, propensity for violence was something that he honed or used in, you know, in, in war. And so that might explain a lot of his 
extremely kind of reserved personality and I don't know. I, the, that character ended up being way better than I thought it was going to be. Definitely. You know, people like to point out the performances again. And as I've said from time to time, I really don't like Brad Pitt, except in the cases when he plays someone just really off the rails or somebody dumb. And when I he's a side like he character, kind of like a, he, yeah. he, he's really like one of the greatest character actors. Like he's like, he kind I mean, of is. And the, Co- yeah. the Coens kind of are like experts. And so is Tarantino of like finding these great character actors. But Brad Pitt just happens to be this huge movie star. Everyone's all rightfully talking about how great DiCaprio was. And he really was. And one thing that the best T- Tarantino did kind kind of surprisingly, once again, breaking the rules of filmmaking is he, he, you know, they could have made this plot just kind of move along, but you spend so much time on this actor's uh, existential crisis, and you know, in the course of a couple of days, going from just the depths of despair to you know, cashing in and and finding this uh, performative peak that everyone might hope to have as an actor, or something like that, and. And uh, the praise and everything, and I was—I thought it was a very funny line when the the girl tells him it was the best acting she's ever seen because uh, you you feel it and you're like, oh, that's that's amazing. But it's funny because it's a girl who's been on the earth for eight years telling him that. But she's you know? very precocious. She's very precocious, but who cares? She's been conscious for like two years. You know? Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm yeah. less dismissive. I think of it's that. funny. I don't. It's not dismissive. I think it was purposefully funny, and I think it was really. It good. was, but but I think that. And here's the thing, and this is going to be ridiculous, but I, I've got to say it. Like, I, this is a case of, like, I feel like I wish I hadn't watched the trailer because it, it same sounds weird because most of the trailer was a bunch of, uh, you know, montage, like, stuff happens and it gave me a sense of what to expect for the most part. Just a lot of shots but of Sharon Tate dancing. there's two spoilers in the trailer and one is the girl telling him that's the best scene. So the whole time... For me, I'm watching. Did you see the trailer before the movie? I I probably did, but I don't ever. You didn't remember. I see, didn't say anything from it. I, and so, so I, I knew that he was going to have that redemption moment so, uh, at some point. And so the whole time when he's freaking out and pissed at himself, I'm like, oh man, I wish I hadn't seen the trailer because I would be really like more there'd be an actual bit of suspense there for me. There's that, and then there's Bruce, uh, Bruce Lee, the Bruce Lee fight with Brad Pitt, where he's actually going toe to toe with him, you know, with the part where it gets all kung fu for a minute. And I'm like, so he's gonna fight Bruce Lee like for real deal. So then when it, that moment happens, I'm like, oh, he's gonna not just gonna get knocked on his ass, or it's not, you know. So like th- those moments were both diminished because they were in the trailer, and I feel like that sucks. But you know, it is what it is. I might just start going no tolerance, zero tolerance on trailers for movies I actually really want to see here pretty soon because. I start writing my own ideas by from them, and, and or they spoil a couple of like what might seem like mo- minor moments, but ultimately I think that that Brad, that moment with the girl telling him the acting thing is a is probably the big moment for that character, or one of the big moments for him. It is, but the fact the fact that yeah. it comes at like the midpoint of the film is strange because in terms of character redemption and stuff like that, then you are so you already have him basically uh, get his goal. And then he goes to Italy anyway, and then he comes back with a wife now and has to tell Cliff Booth that he's going to have to, you know, not need his services anymore, which kind of marks the end of their friendship in a way because it forces them to hang out together every day. Well, it's more than that, though, because he's, he's sitting there in that, he's saying that everything might be done. He's not sure if these movies are going to hit. He's gained 15 pounds. He's got this wife he knows was in Right, but the point was he's selling he's the house. He's going to go back to Idaho, wherever, somewhere in the mid, Missouri, Missouri. So he he might be leaving. Soon but too. the point is, you have you had him get that uh, that peak of joy for him before any of those things even happen. Sure. So he he reaches his goal and he kind of doesn't have a goal anymore. However, I don't know. Maybe it was to show that it was something that that still he still had drive for. So then, the fact that all this stuff happens at the end. And then he meets the Jay guy at the gate and they invite him up there, which follows his fantasy of being invited in and having pool parties with them, which would presumably launch his career back on track, right? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just not it's not perfectly clear from a plotting point why it happened. Well, in that yeah, the last 45 like minutes feels like an epilogue. <laughs> yeah, it, it really kind of does. So, if, if 
that character was the only main character, which he's not. So it really is. It really does kind of just follow up. Uh, you know, it's 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 kind of plot driven for as little plot as there is. It's kind of plot driven because if it was a character driven, then there would be some different peaks and valleys and goals met or not met at certain different parts of the film. Once again, a testament to the fact that he does not follow rules and makes them up and breaks them whenever he wants and it still works. Right. Now, the, an interesting question might be if you, and it's a very long movie, if you edit it out and com- almost completely removed, like, say, 85% of, of the Sharon Tate stuff and did, say, cut at the... Uh, end of them watching the episode of FBI together and fade to black, you know, and it's just like, oh, and then these guys are rolling up to go kill Sharon Tate and then that's the movie ending and it's just, this was just a story about these guys who were tangentially around as Hollywood was coming to an end of this. Would that still be a good movie? And I think it would be. I do too, actually. I thought about, I I actually weirdly thought about that same thing where like it, if, if he doesn't subvert the way I expected him to, like if which I, I kind of would have been the ultimate subversion if he just kind of let right. the let it happen as movie, it happened. yeah. Um, and then I, I was like, was he going to show it? But then after the movie, I thought about it and I was like, man, that would have been fucking crazy if he just ended it right before that happened. The way the way they would have done that is, you know, you would set it up so that he might have some sort of thing that would happen in terms of his own success and then the deaths caused that to be yanked away okay and, yeah maybe. and then they then they go off into the sunset in uh uncertainty for their future yeah. that's that's it'd I mean, be more of a 70s cynical movie it'd be more it would. of a bummer there, there would be the and cynicism and the bummer thing 40 minutes i think but a lot less people would be happy tarantino about. doesn't ever do a cynical bummer ending Not he, usually, he ends no. everything with yeah he panders to a degree wins, you know every does, time yeah, the, so. the, the, reservoir the dogs Almost yeah, well, I mean, those are all that's kind true. of scumbags to a degree, except for Tim Roth. But yeah, that was probably his first. But I, I think you're right. Yeah, there is a bit of a because I don't know what percentage of the audience that went, went walked away loving it with the revenge fantasy part of it would um, still be on board if it didn't have that ending. You know, like I'd like to think I would still have you know get get a lot of it and enjoy because to me it wasn't something I was begrudging about. I mean, the length was a little rough. Uh, going into it, but I, I knew I kind of got what I expected, except for the ending. I, I got like, okay, it's going to be a story about these guys that are buddies in late Hollywood times, and they're going to bum around and see some friends. It's going to be like a episode of Entourage in the '60s, you know. <laughs> um, but but a Tarantino version of that, and I'm down for that. And you know, it'll have this historical thing in the background, and that'll punctuate or underscore sort of a thematic aspect of you know the end of this era for Hollywood. And that's pretty much what it does, but then it subverts that, like you said, by becoming an alternate history and kind of maintaining the once upon a time quality, the fake fairy tale right. aspect. So I, I mean, in it, some ways, I think that's problematic. But I, I'm you know, it's fun. I mean, if, if you don't, if you don't, I, I mean, I, I wonder what people who aren't very smart or don't know much about history or Hollywood think about it so much. Because I can, you know, most, I can tell you. <laughs> well, because the, the thing is, this 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 is an event that really did change the structure of uh, Hollywood as an idea. You know, it's not just, it was kind of a world-changing event. And so this is, this is something that changes that. So, it, so really, if you know about all that, this, the plot and the setting and everything is a big deal. So it really is. So it's a big deal to people like us. But I, I'm cur- yeah, curious what somebody who has no clue would think of the whole thing. Would they well, just I- think, oh, that was kind of a funny ending, you know, to some long, boring stuff. I've been at the theater for uh, nine years, mm-hmm. and this is definitely top three, probably the most polarizing movie we've mm-hmm. had there. I mean, I try and make a point at the end of the night to ask people what they thought of, of you know, the last movie because I'm trying to close up and, you know. Um, and I've, I've heard so many people say that's the worst movie I've ever seen, and I've heard so many people say that's my that's the best movie I've ever seen. It's really crazy. And I, I, there was these two old women the other night who didn't know who Quentin Tarantino was but loved it because they thought it was so sweet that he <laughs> had it be a right. happy ending for Sharon yeah, Tate. Yeah, yeah. And, and I was like, well, that's kind of cool for people who actually lived through it to have <clears throat> right. this, like... Uh, 
choking you up a little bit. Yeah. Now I got it's a frog getting a little clamped. Fucking horrible. <laughs> it was kind of uh, nice. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's so sweet. But yeah, to, to have this sort of optimistic view of like this horrible thing, and I was like, you know, they probably never saw Inglorious Bastards, but that's like, that's it's just a cool like it's such a cheap easy thing to like make people happy but it really is like this very effective thing that for some reason only he can do well and i i guess because it's so easy to make that cheap and it's so easy to make that like exploitive or like just silly and he's done it twice now in like huge grandiose ways and both times it's been i think really effective and and these are two of his certainly you know Upper half of his movies, I think *Inglorious* is maybe his I best don't know what, movie. I don't really know what that means. Uh, you what know, do you mean? Because well, because I've just heard somebody talk about like this is this is his second worst film, and then still give it four out of five stars. You know, like yeah, I, I yeah, think, yeah, yeah, I think he what, what, he kind of throws off the scale. I mean, if you rate it against all his other movies, I don't know. I I liked this better than a lot of them. I liked it better than *Jackie Brown* and *Hateful Eight and. Um, I don't know. I mean, the ones I rewatch all the time. I'll, I'll rewatch Django and Inglorious quite frequently. Really. Yeah. Yeah, I'm the, I'm the opposite with all of those things. I can't. Uh, to me, Tarantino is usually bringing a pretty heavy quantity to it, and I think uh, his execution within a genre within genre is so so strong that I would I, I would I would have a very tough time ranking his movies. I would have to just appeal to my own populist like well i've watched kill bill more than i've watched this one but right. that doesn't even slightly it's like alien versus aliens or something you know what i mean like i wouldn't compare this to inglorious bastards even i mean yeah it's got similar kind of structure with an ending type stuff but they're like that's a war movie this is like a meandering 70s movie and when you're in the mood for a meandering 70s movie it's a damn good one and when you're in the mood for a you know sort of fantasy war movie that's a damn good one um, I think, though, that like like what you're saying, though, is that, yeah, the reason Tarantino can get away with this cheap stuff is because, you know, he lays out the table, he decorates it nicely, he sets up the stage, he puts the right music on, he does all that, and then he can totally just justifiably put his whole dick and balls on the table right there <laughs> and get away with it because everything else is great, you know, like, and, and be like, huh, there you go. You know, if this was done by... A lot of other people, they wouldn't get away with it. And sometimes I, it doesn't always work for me. I, I, I was wonder. not a big fan of Django because of the kind of pandery fantasy stuff. I felt like it was kind of doing a disservice to the reality in the, uh, of slavery and stuff. It still kind of bothers me, and I haven't revisited it because it's like, this is not supposed to be funny, but uh, I don't know. So I still feel kind of weird about that one, but that's my own thing to work past. But it, he's doing I, that I have too. to disagree with the idea that or the, the even the thought, like, is that something that someone else could do and get away with? Because he rejects your hypothesis completely. Yeah, well, not just yeah. that; it's the, it's that I feel like he can't. He just he just. I mean, I, there's no one else. You can say, "What if someone else did this?" But if no one else would do it, everyone else follows the rules. Everyone That's else follows the plot rules. They do. I mean, they're every everyone follows screenwriting and plotting rules even if you think of the more um real even people who have more i mean even pt anderson's things that they're if you if you really look carefully they're carefully plotted and they actually follow particular beats even if it seems like they're not doing them in the same way as like a jack ryan film or something like that but tarantino's don't they don't do that and he still he does work toward a climax you know, he's he so, there are definitely other that. people who don't do it, but and, and, you, and he definitely is using genre too. Like they revenge. I'm not, I'm not just like saying. I'm not just talking this. about that. I'm it, talking it, about it plots through that way. All the rules of the things you are not supposed to do in terms of narration, in terms of okay. uh, telling and not showing. He he just doesn't care about any of those sure. rules. I he don't does think, not honestly, care. Honestly, I'll tell you, I don't think like you brought the narration. That's good. I think in this movie as well. I had kind of a problem with it. It came and went, and it was... But how would you have found out all that information? That's the thing. I don't know that I needed as much of that. Or or it could have been done a different way. But I, I, I'm not going to... like. If I were He shouldn't not... have done it at the beginning. 
because then there's like an hour and a half where there's no narration. He should have just saved the narration for the end, and it would have been really effective and maybe, funny. I maybe think. still, but it's, so it's sort of done like it's a news report too. So it really is trying to underscore he that, did that sense in, of like uh, time frame and like this is when I think in Glorious you only get the Samuel Jackson narration later in the film, don't you? Yeah, it's that one little, and they cut to black and white footage. I think it's just one part for that though. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so so yeah, in those sense, yeah, you're right. He is having fun, and he's 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 breaking some stuff that a lot of people don't do anymore, or or certainly don't get away with. I don't know. I haven't seen every movie. It's in in his case, it's not just here's one thing that he doesn't do. It's that or that he doesn't do like everyone else does, or you're supposed to, or it's something they teach you to do in screenwriting, or something sure. they teach you to do in directing. It's that he does that with like five or ten things. It's well, not one right. thing. The, the, you know what I mean? The, the it's talking like talking about stuff, not showing and stuff. Just, there's, I mean, a great deal of it. And and then especially in terms of, um, you know, and he all, he generally does it at some point in terms of plotting and with characters. Sometimes, like he doesn't follow. You know what's it's interesting is that people give him so much credit for some of his character work, and I feel like they give him a pass. For some characters that are honestly written poorly and, and just just exact just exist on the strength of their dialogue, the uh, but dialogue says see, I've the, always been the Doctor King Schultz. That's a terrible character in my opinion. I, I love the movie, like I just said, I watched over and over. But he's just he's a fantasy white savior character, and it's complete fantasy because. There's no motive. There's in terms of character writing. There's no motivation for him to do any for of the stuff help, he does. Yeah. There's no motivation whatsoever for him to do any of the stuff he does in the movie. But you just kind of blow past it, and it's fine because, because you like he's a great, it. Because he's a great filmmaker, and he has a lot of great dialogue in there. And you, you know, you want Django's. Django's the character who yada yada yada. But there's no reason whatsoever for the for him to even exist, except for to teach him and. Well, that, that, those are, that, that's sort of a different thing than just the, the showing telling. But if we break them apart, like you got motivation. But it's not different in that if he was working with any sort of boss, they yeah. would make him change that. If he was think, answering to anyone, if there was anyone to tell him don't do this, if he if there was accountability for him at all, because there is yeah. no... Har- Har- Harv was playing ball with him for a while, and, and Harv let him I guarantee you, Harvey never once gave him story notes. Probably not. Ever. But like I said, that was his boss on some level. That was the guy who gave him the money, right? I mean, yeah. Th- he there's, didn't care what he did as long as he got him some pussy out of it, you know? There's oh, only so many... like filmmakers that are allowed to be you know like masturbatory and sort of up their own ass and it and everybody sort of enjoys it so yeah, they'll, they'll let they, the cullens do it they'll let pt anderson do it there's a handful of wes like, anderson the, the absolute masters yes wes anderson absolutely they allow him to do to get away with spike lee ag- again a lot of stuff but wes anderson has really careful character work where everyone has extremely specific motivations yeah yeah and tarantino just sometimes is like yeah I don't know. I think the motivations in Andersons are usually because he's using like the same handful of like he does childish. They're always the same. It's the whole thing with Anderson, right? He picks something. The kids are like adults. The adults are like kids, and then they have petty blah blah blahs, and they learn. But but the petty thing is is really good for character work. It can be yeah for character writing. But but I've always been of the opinion that. The, the showing not telling thing doesn't need to be quite taken so literally that if you have can write good dialogue like Tarantino does and other people like P.T. Anderson and stuff because I just watched you know Sydney recently Hard Eight. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Sydney. The uh, it, you can show a lot about a character in how they tell things and how they speak and how they do things and that's also. Uh, I mean, there's action within, like, you know, a coffee shop scene of how, whether or not somebody's, like, constantly looking out the door or, yeah, yeah. you know, putting sugar in their coffee every time they take a sip of it. or You know what I mean? Like, that that's different kinds of stuff. But just the way, like, um, somebody, the Coens, what they always have, the, like, somebody repeats something, right? Isn't that something that they have a char- characters do a lot in movies is that they say something and say it again? I don't know. I, I think I heard t- right, somebody I was listening to somebody. They feel a lot more calculated, whereas Tarantino, I feel like he... I think the reason that people love him so much is because he's so. Uh, I, I I get the sense that every and this is probably true of so many directors, but with him it's so surface level where every single choice that he makes is like something that he just really wants to see in a movie. So every single thing that happens is like, sure it could be silly, but it's him going like, well yeah, I really want to see this happen, so this is what I'm fucking writing into my movie, and it sometimes is 
absurd. Like, I mean, at the end of this movie with the flamethrower and the fucking girl screaming and the head bashed into the thing. So it's, good. It's, it's stupid, but it's fucking awesome. So it's good. so fun. So yeah. good. I, I, just, well, he set up the just the fact that it was He's happening. Seen, oh, they set up the flame. Yeah, Chekhov's flamethrower. Yeah, Chekhov's flamethrower. The ending happening, I was I involuntarily laughed, and I was like looking back and forth from Ryan to the screen, laughing like I could not believe this was happening. Right. I cannot believe that this is happening right now, and it was so shocking that he even considered doing that. I thought I about like, you when it happened because I thought when I saw it because I loved the, the I, I, honestly I like, like Zach's gonna love this if, shit. If not for the ending, I would have gone through it and been like, yeah, that's 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 pretty good. You know, and like it had the ending like we were just talking about, like you know, yeah. like a bummer seventies thing. Kind of yeah, I would like that's yeah that was that was really cool and interesting and it pr- it probably would have thrown uh, more emphasis on how great the performances were. Yeah, cetera, yeah. You would say he's become a more subtle and yeah, right. And it, it would be more age. about the character work. And in yeah. this case, you know, like I just said about the, the Doctor King Schultz thing, these characters have motivation. You know, Cliffs is a little more. I'm sure we could break that down, but it's not. Well, he's too cool there. for school. He's that too cool for school hero character that can beat Bruce Lee and then defeat the man. And he doesn't really want much because he's world. just kind of floating through. Oh, he's you know, and it's, and it's showed by like it's shown in these different ways, and especially when every time they show their shoes stepping out of the thing, and he's got those moccasins. Yeah, which yeah. I, I really going, want. Man. I really want those. I I laughed at one point uh, when one of the first scenes of a door opening. And like seventy thousand cigarettes falling out. Yeah, thing. that was that was pretty funny. But anyway, uh, that that ending made that made the movie as good as it was. And I'm not sure how many times I can I've been able to say that about a film that you know normally an ending is just like well that puts a pin on it. You know that's that's the successful resolution of all the conflicts and everything. Yeah, this was just like this wasn't that. It was like if. Like I said, if not for the ending, the movie would have been okay. I would have come away thinking yada yada. But instead, I came away with this unbelievable feeling that I had just seen something incredible and so funny and just stunning, shocking. I'm not shocked or stunned by movies. You know, I've been I've been studying them as an art form for you know 30 years of my life. Yeah. Well, let me pose pose an interesting hypothetical to both of you because you're talking about the ending thing. And just to get back to structure in a fairly superficial way, how many great, not okay, but great movies do you think have kind of shrugged, meh, they just put a pin on it, endings? I think most great movies have to have something memorable and strong in the ending. Now, maybe it's Psycho and he's in cross-dressing. Or maybe it's uh, seven in the box in the to, head. To go back to the Coens, No Country for Old Men has a completely anticlimactic. Yeah. Well, that, that's ending. a good example of, of what we have that. You know? I, I, so I think there are, and especially. What, wasn't yeah, your point that, wasn't you know, your point that the end was the strong. You're, you're saying where the end is the strongest aspect of the film? Yes. That, and if or, yes. or very strong. Or not, not that it was the strongest of the film, but, it, but it, made, sure. it made the preceding two and a half hours that. You know that I just sat through, excellent by association. Right. Okay. Yeah, I, yeah, don't, I mean, I, I don't know how many there are. There's definitely other movies like that, but I definitely, I mean, I I sort of can't think of any off the top of my head. I I also didn't really think that. I mean, the end. If I like <laughs> did something as stupid as ranking scenes or whatever, it would probably be in like fifth for me. I I really liked the end, but. For me, the whole movie was more about. I just fucking loved the Leonardo DiCaprio fake acting inside of the movie where he's real acting stuff. I really loved the self-reflexive stuff where, like that uh, that girl with the black hair who gets flamethrowered. Yeah. Her her monologue in the back of the car. Yeah, she was good. That it, it's awesome, and then the fact that Tarantino has her get like the most horrible death of anybody well, is so it's funny not, to me. It's not just if when when I say the ending, it's not just uh the scene inside the house. It's like Oh, okay, okay. So from, you're saying from, like the whole the, that from that the time sequence. You know that the when he when Kurt Russell says in the line that they're gonna have a good old fashioned drunk from yeah. that point on. From that okay. point on, that's just brilliant. And it's all fantastic. Mr. Science so, Theater scene. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that he's that he that he was consciously burning her because she's like could criticizing what he's made his career out of doing. I mean that's that sounds like something that Tarantino might have written into the thing but I mean I just think it's 
it's a dumb drunk guy who, for whatever reason, kept a flamethrower. It's just yeah. hilarious. That's just hilarious. <laughs> so because funny. it just doesn't... It just Him drinking it is cool is so yeah. funny. And the other guy, you know, the, the acid-tinged cigarette, I don't think that really played into anything, except Not for that it all. makes Cliff, who's pretty dumb and slow anyway, in my opinion, even dumber and slower, and laugh at things. And, and, well, and uh, it justifies and that, the that line, and he goes... He goes, oh, what was your name? And he goes, I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's business. And there's that long beat, and then he goes, nah, it was something dumber than that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a great fucking line. There's like well, some... I mean, it allows him to throw, be thrown off. I mean, he was already cool, a cool, cool cucumber, yeah. but like the acid trip worked out well for him. And yeah, he was yeah. able to, to regulate And all that stuff things. with the and dog. And the dog's the hero. This is the year so of dog fantastic. violence, isn't it? That's, it? It really was. And it was like, you know, it's funny because these people fight so hard to make sure that uh, pit bulls are not stereotyped as these child-killing things. And then he just is like, fuck that. I'm going to put this person, this dog, just rip these people to shreds. The dog movie, was nice you know? to everybody. In yeah. Yeah. Totally he was, yeah. And he clicks it. With the, and he, he, I love he does that clicking dog. thing. And it's all that stuff comes back from just the one scene, which if you think about it in terms of plotting, why do we need to see him drive home for 10 minutes and then go have a night where he sits alone and watches TV and eats mac and cheese and, and teaches his dog not to complain while he's slowly getting it its disgusting dog food. That's pathos, but it, but man. It all, but it all pays off, you know? Yeah. But all that stuff has living. so much to do with his the story he's telling of the movie industry and the fact that he lives right outside of a drive-in, you know, yeah. and things behind like that. Behind the curtain, right. behind the screen, right, right. yeah. No, and that was good. That was that was good pathos. I actually liked that scene a lot. Um, I mean, I liked the acting stuff. Um, I think for me, it, like I said, I'm really looking forward to whatever extended version at home. I can what is what is the Tim Roth role? What is that? I don't I keep know anything people. about it. I didn't okay. research. Did you it see the credits? He's, he's credited in there, but yeah. then in parentheses says cut. Yeah, he's Tim part Roth, of the players cut. or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so so I mean, who knows? But. Uh, I mean, it's going to be... It's definitely one I'm... It's the, it'll be the first Tarantino I will have bought since Inglorious Bastards. I didn't care for the last two that much. Um, you know, I mean... I, I thought they were fine to, as one watch, but I'm never going to watch either of them again. I think I have them, like, digital copy, but yeah, I haven't bought a, I haven't bought a Blu-ray since Inglorious, and I'll definitely be buying this, especially well, if there's some good features. I was a bit in, like... I knew it going in when I... Because I'd heard enough and had listened to podcasts about it, but with um, Hateful Eight... I was a bit kind of like scratching my head. Like people were really drinking the Tarantino Kool-Aid pretty heavy with like, oh, it's going to be 70 millimeter roadshow yeah, for a Western. The most oh, unnecessary awesome. 70 but, millimeter. Like, yes, exactly. It's cabin. shot like a play in one yeah, location inside. I'm like, why would you shoot that in 70? You're doing a Western, right? Big the format shit makes me and, so mad because it's yeah, always people who are like, they think they're like big cinephiles who are talking about like how much they adore films in 70 millimeter and it's like no there's no fucking it's cool kind of like i saw lawrence of arabia in 70 millimeter and i was like okay there's definitely something to this it's like cool like history thing it's like watching a game at wrigley it's i mean but there's if you're watching a movie in 4k or in 35 or in 70 it's like okay well if the movie's good the movie's fucking good like what bothers me, going back to this again, is when people point out how good the cinematography was in something, generally that's because the story was boring. I feel like people are like, oh man, the performances were great and the cinematography, there's such beautiful pictures in it. Who cares? If it's, yeah. if the, you know, if, if the movie is not entertaining on its own, then the rest of that stuff is like, you know, draping something nice on the skeleton of a pig or something. That's I, I mean, I could go into a tangent for a bit. I mean, depending on people's schedules or whatever. I mean, I could go for it all night. <laughs> Do but it, man. I, I, I've got tangent an interesting away. example of that because I watched um, this movie I had in my Netflix queue for years last weekend uh, with John Hawks. It was called uh, Too Late. Okay. And it's this kind of noir. I don't know who, who directed it. Some guy wrote directed it. And I don't know if it was all shot on like Super 16 or something, but the first two scenes in it look terrible. They're shot in daytime. And it just, it looks like it hasn't been corrected. It just doesn't look good. And I almost was like, oh man, I hate to be like like the next, you know, turn it off guy. Because this might be interesting. And I ended up watching all of it. And it was this like, kind of a Tarantino knockoff. You know, it's sort of a detective. And then it's done in sequences and vignettes and cut out of order. But yeah, yeah, it's that one. Yeah. Dennis Hawk. Yeah, Dennis Hawk. Um, 
And 35 millimeter technoscope, five 22 minute individual takes, no hidden cuts. Right. Okay. Well, yeah, that's so true. It was a lot of yeah. single cut gimmick stuff too, but it was, it all worked. Like I was aware of it and I was aware that those first two sequences did not look good to me. Now that could have been a Netflix streaming thing and they just, in the daytime, it was less, and then in the night scenes, they all, it all started to look or I just got, you know, my eyes got used to it. And Whoa. Accepted that. Ryder Strong is in it. Yeah, he is. And Jeff oh, Fahey. Shit. And Fa- Fahey and, uh, and what's his name from Jackie Brown, your favorite Kurt Tarantino. I do like Fahey. Oh, Forster, yeah. Yeah. I like Fahey a lot. Forster like is in it. Yeah. Um, anyway, it's one I would kind of recommend because it's it's kind of interesting in what it's doing with the format with the walking away. But, but going back to that. But yeah, the, but the, I noticed the it but then I got look. past it because to me the story got interesting enough. Noticing something doesn't look good is generally like that means that the story is good enough that you wish it would have looked better. Well, my, so you're so saying my that is be, like a thing, but but if but if the movie sucked anyway, you wouldn't be pointing out that a couple of scenes looked stupid. But you wouldn't be complaining about the individual look of some things if you just didn't like the film, right? I, I mean, sure, I would feel a lot more indignant that it didn't. It wasn't at least visually interesting. Yeah, exactly, absolutely, I mean, yes. I mean, but so what were you going to say, Ro? The thing that came to my mind when Zach was saying that was Mad Men, which I always just I watched the first two and a half seasons of Mad Men I thought it was fucking exhaustively boring it put me to sleep <laughs> but I would always tell people who ask me like have you seen Mad Men I'll be like yeah the acting's good the cinematography's good the music's good the costumes are good and I fucking hate it <laughs> like everything about it's good except the most that. important aspect which is story to me I mean obviously there's people who love the story of that too but I like it but it's hard to pin down it is you know it is a primetime soap opera that's got the existential stuff and if if you can't kind of in that, I think Mad Men is an easy one to tell someone if they can't get behind the uh... last two movies we reviewed. And there's a thing on New York Times about it on Twitter with movies like Midsummer and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. The dark side of 1960s counterculture is having a cultural moment. The style world is taking note. Are hippies the new goths? <laughs> <laughs> but 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 yeah. So anyway, just back with that. Mad Men is a perfect example where if you're not sold by the uh, end of the pilot. Then I don't think that that show is that that, yeah. that shows like structure and the kind of stories it's going to be is never going to like change from that and it's it's very hardly uh, serial. I mean, there's story characters and things and stuff, but so it's but TV is a whole different gimmick to get into, like just yeah, talking yeah. about stuff like that. But no, that, that that's a fair example. If like it didn't, the story doesn't grab me either, but it looks good. But I mean, I, I look at it like as a, there there's a different way to talk about movies, and yeah, if. Uh, performances, all those elements that go into making a movie, I'm aware of all of that stuff when I watch movies, even when I really like them. So I'm bad for that. Like I'm not the like, oh man, the score was so good because I didn't hear it while I was watching the movie. I'm like, no, that score was good because it grabbed me. It had hooks or whatever you want to say. I was aware of when that music was being used in a way that I thought was you know, emotionally effective. Or are there or, are there uh, exceptions uh, for you? Because there are for me, and they're they're kind of like. Like uh, things where things where you completely get immersed because like I fucking I, 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 Face Off and Armageddon movies like that I'm so in and uh, I think it's like that there's like a fine line between schlock and actual like art where it like rides the line perfectly where I'm just my fucking brain actually shuts off and I'm so invested that oh, I don't pay attention to like the actual filmmaking which is probably why I love Armageddon so much well, and Zach's giving gonna, shit for it. I'm not gonna say I'm good for. Like being really per- per- particular about, I think I'm probably I get blinded by performances because I just go along with story a lot and accept. Okay, these people are just doing this. This person's crying and screaming, and maybe that's over the top or maybe it's not. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and uh, certainly, like, yeah, for certain things, like I'm not sitting there catching. Oh, the Wachowski brothers or whatever the Wachowski siblings, sisters, <laughs> whatever are. they are, sisters. The sisters. Don't right. say whatever they are. Ian. Yeah. They, uh, well, are they now calling themselves the sisters? Yeah, when, when they were uh, the yeah. siblings. Well, siblings for, for a while, they were just saying right. the Wachowskis. Yeah, Wachowskis works. Anyway, Which I'm is talking about the, the Matrix when they were the Wachowski brothers. So when they, they did this at a time where they like do like a Zoom push in and like a Kung Fu scene, it's like my friend was pointing out that, and he's really pays attention to cinematography more than I do. Like I, I, I'm saying, I get sort of a cursory sense of it all. Like for me, the best one of the best examples of my sort of dichotomy of criticism and enjoy movie enjoyment is when I was watching Inception at the like big music ending James Bond part 
and I'm loving it and totally engaged, but I'm also, a part of me is completely loving how Nolan has pulled off doing all of this. He's like, he's doing a Bond movie. He's having a car crash that's slow motion. He's having this music kick ass. He's having gunfights. I'm like, this is, he's having a guy fight in zero gravity in an awesome hotel room. Like, how great, how cool is this that all this stuff has get, gotten put together to make this movie and I'm still enjoying the movie. That's probably like when I'm at my happiest, which is kind of kind of weird. It's it's rare for me to be. You know, it's funny. We always talk about that, but I, that uh, the snow James Bond stuff from Inception is the most inane to me. It's boring, and I don't like that. Well, there's hardly the anything film. to it, but it's just cool environment. And then to ma- to match it to those other elements, and then to set it all to that music, and then just have that intensity building. Yeah, well, I, that that all comes down to how absolutely crazy he is about plotting and he does it so i mean he is the most meticulous sure. carefully crafted filmmaker you know it's funny to hear people talk about him and how i think how empty people think of a lot of his stuff as i think Did i think there's empty or cold because there's a difference empty okay. you know it's it's similar in a way to i don't know would you say fincher is empty or cold I would say Fincher is, is cold. I would say neither are empty, and they're both they both can be cold and mm. clinical. Because, like you said, if it's if it's about plot, or in Fincher's case, like quite literally about like the images and even the kind of characters. A lot of times, they're very like it's a it, you know it's a credit card commercial of people. A lot of times, it's. I think the fact that he gets strong actors to play his lead characters, and I mean, they have very specific motivations and things pushing them. In Nolan's case. Uh, and so that ends up being maybe glossing over some of it, but maybe it is just cold. Everything just seems kind of, you know, it's, I, I really love the prestige and that's just really, it's just really so confusing. But even that is like, he knows exactly what's happening. I don't know if he's ever talked about it. I don't know if he's told you like, is that a clone at the end or is that him actually dying in the thing? And, you know, uh, that might be the only part that's actually confusing about it. it. Would you accept that? Okay. There's magic in this world. <laughs> yeah. But uh, he's just, he's so careful and meticulous that I think that's maybe what bothers me when some of the stuff doesn't sit right with me. I love Inception. I, I, absolutely amazing film. Um, and once again, all the stuff, all the it's got incredible cinematography and tr- tricks of the trade and all those things, like you just said, all those yeah. amazing things in there. And that stuff would just infuriate me if the movie itself wasn't great it'd be you know? sucker punch which isn't like fantastically great but i mean it's got got elements of things that should be cool like i want to like awesome action sequences on a train but this movie is not sucker punch yeah. sucker punch is the ultimate should be good movie and it yeah, sucks exactly. it sucks so bad yeah i don't know about that but it, ultimate should be good movie how dude on paper like that trailer's amazing <clears throat> the trailer was, was pretty good and it was like such a cool idea and it looks kind of sweet and it was like Zack Snyder doing a movie that is actually like fit it fits his style and like he shouldn't be making all these movies that he's been getting to make but and, that movie was like a it wasn't, movie for him and it wasn't just a complete uh, adaptation of something exactly it was like this original yeah. cool thing and then I went and saw it and it was just like people landing in like the three point you know, pose funny over and over I've, again I've tried to uh, watch it a couple times uh, since just because uh, there's so many just stunningly hot chicks in it. <laughs> and so I, every once in a while, I'm just like, you know, I, I would just want to catch it. I just want to watch no, no, I know not, yeah, I'm just like, I'm just going to watch some hot chicks, you know? <laughs> and I still can only make it like halfway through and be like, ah. Like, I said we'd circle back to Tarantino. Oh, yeah. What else, what else do you want to say? Possible worst movie, but I don't know that Well, it is you know, I, I, I don't know. But in terms of ranking them, everyone has their own taste and everything like that. I'd. I could give two shits about Jackie Brown. Everyone loves right. Jackie Brown. I think Pulp Fiction is fantastic. I think uh, I really like the Kill Bill. Yada yada. If it counted as one or two or whatever, I mean Kill Bill one is better. But I agree. Um, uh, I love Inglorious. I think Death Proof's I, the worst, right? I don't like. You know, a lot of people have talked about that as his best, and some people are like, "Oh, Death you Proof watch it again." Yeah, some who people the have fuck said, said like, that? Some people have said like, "You got to watch it again." I've never watched it again, but the first time I saw it, I was like, Ugh. "I have it," and I, I didn't. I enjoyed it the first time, and I'll probably watch it again. But I don't know. It was I was gonna. It was, I was gonna reference it in terms of something you were saying earlier. That was what I was gonna come back on in the general criticism or discussion because I think maybe because it's. Oh, I know. Know what it is. 
It's because there's not, other than Kurt Russell, there's not a lot of known big actors doing the the Tarantino dialogue. So he really is working on a budget with kind of a lot of not not well known actors. And you were making that point about like you know he gets good actors and then you know and so I'm like well his his, his dialogue does a lot of the lifting and then he is a good director of, for actors too because I think that. I mean, what what are the people he's got? Is what, what's her name? Zoe Bell, Zoe Bell yeah. the stunt woman, and she's she seems to do okay. I mean, for what the movie is, it doesn't require like a huge range, maybe, but they all work in the in the context of the movie. So I think that just goes to show that you could probably give Tarantino, you know, a handful of WB twenty something actors. It's and not even making the right movie. He probably he probably up their game. You know, it's yeah. not even the best movie in the movie it's in. Yeah, I liked uh, Planet Terror is way Planet better. Terror. I think I was one of the few. I thought I was one of the few people who liked Planet Terror more. I well, saw I, I saw Grindhouse three times in the theater, and oh it was God. such a fun fucking. That those trailers are so good. Yeah, the I just loved really it. Good. But the yeah. third time I saw it, um, I probably, if I would have had my license, I probably would have left before right. that. I can imagine <laughs> being burned out on that. Yeah, but anyway, they, they got the order wrong on those. It's yeah, I agree completely. So I wouldn't say anything like I wouldn't justify that uh, Once Upon a Time is his second or third work. You know, I, I think he has several quote unquote. I like movies. I like Death Proof for the record. I think they're all good. Yeah, I think Death Proof's okay. I mean, I I think maybe I would give Jackie Brown and Death Proof something like three out of five stars. You know, like that's about as bad as he gets in my case. And I think he's one of the rare directors where I would give more than three and a half or 3.75 stars to the majority of his work. Um, You'd venture a four. Maybe venture a four. I mean, it, it takes a lot. I mean, you know, my idea of a perfect movie is something like the thing or there will be blood or something like that. So it's, I don't think he really quite gets to a level of something just absolutely perfect to that as those, just because mostly he's, he's aping things and making homages to them. So I'm not sure Maybe my mind just won't allow me to take it as it's all just his work, and that he's not just—he's doing homages, but he's also—I mean—he's also, you know, in doing that, he's also become one of the most influential guy. I mean, Pulp Fiction is Pulp Fiction is probably—I think that's probably it's full of homages, but the sum of its parts is incredibly original. Becomes a genre unto itself. Yeah, yeah. Like that's, that's, that's a four and a half. You know, I mean, it, excited for the Netflix show. <laughs> uh, Fuck. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I would say that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is is among his top, the top half of his films, and that's good enough to be, you know, probably the best thing I've seen this year. 